Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally. To the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Let's talk about the job of the director, specifically the job of directing films versus directing television. There used to be a huge difference between the two media, but as television has become more cinematic and movies more like theme park rides, the lines have blurred a bit. Much has been discussed about this platinum age of television we're in. Budgets from the broadcast networks, cable channels, and streaming sources have benefited from the competition, and the production values have never been higher. And marquee names no longer fear the smaller screen. The primary job of the director is to corral all of the creative elements of a film or television project into a single cohesive vision. In movies, the director is the one to answer all the questions cast and crew throw at them, to guide an actor's performance from the outside in, to keep in mind what comes before each scene that's shot and what comes after, to know the context of the film at all times, to have a visual plan that is all-encompassing, to set the atmosphere and cinematic language of the movie. Movies for television and miniseries are very much like feature films in that regard. Though budgets are generally tighter, the process is very much the same. But in the land of series television, it is the writer-producer who often takes charge of those elements. When a director takes on an episode of a series, he or she is not taking on a script. They're taking on a calendar slot, as scripts are rarely available for specific episodes until shortly before they are shot. So you hope that if you're accepting a job as a director for hire, that you will get one of the good scripts. A director on someone else's TV show doesn't have much input to the script, if any at all, and is often working with a crew and cast who know more about the characters and look of show than the director does. The challenge is to find a place within those parameters to inject one's own style and sensibilities to enhance the qualities of an established series and contribute something to add even more character to the story at hand. On the handful of other people's series I've taken on, I've been lucky enough to work with terrific producers who've encouraged me to bring my own sense of style into their proceedings, and I was surprised to find that for the most part I've really enjoyed doing the occasional episodic job. You're surrounded by creative people exercising their powers, using all the latest film technologies, working with new actors and telling stories cinematically, and you're in and out in three weeks or so. Not all episodic experiences have been completely rosy, but you learn from those as well. It is an opportunity to continue to evolve, to learn, to practice, to become a better filmmaker each time out. Working in the various media provides a wide variance of experience, and it's like learning to walk each time you take on a new project. Television and features each still offer their own challenges. As feature film budgets balloon, creative control for a director is spread out into many hands. And as production values for television increase, the director is more able to exercise the filmmaking muscles that had not been allowed to be engaged before. Our guest, Richard Shepard, is an Emmy-winning director who has worked extensively in film and television media, most recently in the Netflix movie causing lots and lots of discussion, The Perfection. We'll talk about his experiences bringing that wildly imaginative dive into horror cinema, as well as his work in film, TV, and the streaming hybrid after this. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been 40 years now, and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. 
These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15% off your subscription. That's Fangoria.com, promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15%. Fright Rags is the premier place for horror apparel and accessories from all your favorite creature features, slasher flicks, and cult classics. Now in their 16th year, Fright Rags has officially licensed products for over 50 films, releasing new collections every week featuring artwork from top industry artists professionally screen printed on super soft ring-spun cotton shirts. They also just released a special 40th anniversary Fangoria logo shirt and limited edition enamel pin set. I gotta get me one of those. From now through September 30th, get 10% off your first order. Head on over to FrightRags.com and enter code FANGO40 at checkout to activate your discount. That's Fright-Rags.com and your discount code is F-A-N-G-O-4-0. Fright-Rags.com Our friends at Paramount have given us a couple of giveaways for the post-mortem audience to celebrate the digital 4K and Blu-ray release of Pet Cemetery on July 9th. First prize will be a Blu-ray disc and 4K digital copy of the movie autographed by friends of the podcast, directors Dennis Widmeyer and Kevin Kelsch, as well as a Pet Cemetery t-shirt. Second prize is the 4K digital copy on its own. To enter, just answer the following question, which comes up in our discussion with Richard Shepard today. What is the name of the fantastic Pierce Brosnan movie that Richard Shepard directed? Send your answers to us at PostmortemGram on Instagram or tweet your answer to PostmortemMG and we will choose the winners at random. What is the name of the Pierce Brosnan movie directed by Richard Shepard? Send your answers to PostmortemGram on Instagram and PostmortemMG on Twitter and good luck. So, Richard, how did it start for you? There's not much information about you that's accessible online. And I know you're from New York City, but what did the film bug that bit you? What was it? How did it begin? My dad, who was not in the business at all, uh, was a big film fan. And from a young age, I just loved movies. And as soon as the dream of playing third base for the New York Mets went out the window <laughs> when I was around 12 and realized that was never going to happen... Uh, I got a Super 8 camera for my sixth grade graduation and started making little movies. And well, mine came after my uh, eighth grade graduation. There you go. <laughs> but you know, it was really, it was, it was, it's, I suddenly had something that made sense to me, you know, and I feel, I always feel lucky that that happened. And, uh, you know, I would scrap together whatever money I could in high school. I would convince the kids to make bake sales on the streets of New York just to raise money to make my movies. Wow. Um, and, and uh, you know, I feel like, thank God I've figured out a way to make a living. I mean, it's <laughs> right. so tough, but, you know, I don't know what else I could do. But how did that happen? How did you make the transition from a kid with a Super 8 camera into a guy who was actually making his living telling stories. Well, much film. like you, I'm a writer, you know, and writing is a great way into directing, I think, um, because at the end of the day, if you can write a screenplay, you're showing that you can tell a story. Right. And, and um, <clears throat> if you have a screenplay that's good, you can also control it in some way. And, and that's sort of how I started. I, I, I wrote with a partner for a number of years, we wrote a bunch of scripts and eventually was was able to like cobble together the money to make this movie, The Linguini Incident. The Linguini Incident. This is like 91, I think. Correct. Um, David Bowie, your this first is, movie. This is a romantic comedy that was neither romantic nor particularly funny. But at the time, <laughs> uh, there was great hopes for it. It was a... Roseanne Arquette was in it. Uh, and then the male lead, I... I, I 
the person I had written the movie with, Tamar Brat, we were like, we should, we, we want David Bowie to be in this movie. And we were just so naive to even have that idea. And yet somehow that actually happened. That's um, incredible. It's incredible. I've asked sometimes uh, what movie of any movie ever made you would want to remake because there's mm-hmm. remakes all the time. And I always say I would love to remake the Linguini incident because I now know that I now know how to direct and right. <laughs> I would do a really good job. With and you could movie. make a romantic comedy exactly. that was funny and romantic. Exactly. Cause it had a lot of really good elements in it, you know? Um, but well, it, Bowie was such a unique individual. I mean, back in my, uh, my rock journalist days, I interviewed him a couple of times and saw him in concert a lot. And what a fascinating guy. He wanted to be a director, never was able to make that step, but his son became a successful. That's right. Director. A very interesting director. Yeah. Uh, Bowie couldn't have been nicer. It was a incredibly difficult experience. Our producer on that film, I never made a real movie. So the idea of, I didn't really know what people did, but this producer was basically, uh, stealing money and doing drugs and, <laughs> and, 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 and checks were bouncing and, and it was a very tough thing. We had no, not a lot of money and, uh, Roseanne Arquette was difficult. You know, I've subsequently made peace with her and she's now a friend, but it was a difficult experience to be thrown in like that. And and uh, and it kind of put me out and the piece de resistance. The movie opened on the day of the L.A. riots. Oh, perfect. So it had there was a there was a curfew in L.A. So it actually had the lowest per screen average in the history of movies. (laughs) Oh, great. Um, uh, That's some sort of honor. It's something. And. Uh, even though we got some nice reviews, uh, uh, it did nothing for me at all. In fact, it kind of hurt me. It was not really? not really, you know, the business took no notice of it. And if so anything, it, it, it hurt me. It was it, as if you'd never made a feature. Well, this is what's interesting about my career. So I'm gonna, we're eventually going to get to my movie, The Matador, which yes. was actually like the fourth thing I'd ever done. But to most people, it was the first thing I'd ever done. It's the first right. thing they'd ever heard of. It was me. the first one where I stood up and took notice. That's right. But in between the Linguini incident and the Matador, there were a lot of ups and downs, a mm-hmm. lot. Mm-hmm. I ended up you know, going a few years just struggling, getting little screenwriting gigs, and then made a $50,000 movie. Oh, wow. That Sam Rockwell was the second movie he was ever in. Wow. A little thriller. And we ended up selling it to HBO uh, back at the time when that could happen, I guess. And <laughs> And... Made our money back and actually made a, a, a hair of I, the only movie ever to pay the deferments back to the crew, you know. Really? Wow. So I was very proud of that. And then I made a million dollar movie that Adrian Brody was in and more Tierney, who I went to NYU with. Right. And then I made like w- one other movie and then I just hit a real like dry spot. Oh, I mean, yeah. truly dry. And I had been making enough money. I. I had done a little this, a little that. I was scraping by, but then suddenly, like, it was a bad period of time. My dad got sick. My agent fired me. It was one of those times where you really, like, am I, can I continue to do this, you know? But I did what I always do when I'm sort of feeling trapped, which is I just started writing. Because ultimately, like, again, going back to the idea that a script is power, I wrote a little movie that I thought I would make for $100,000, shoot it on like video and and uh and sent to this agent who I had who'd been wanting to sign me he liked it we sent it to Pierce's company as a sample of my writing to try and get me a job writing Thomas Crown Affair 2 ah and right. Pierce's producing partner the late great Bo St. Clair read the script and she's like I think this might be a good movie for Pierce to be in Wow, that's kind of remarkable because it's nothing like we'd ever seen Pierce before. You know, it was incredibly funny and arch, and, you know, he he's very much an anti-hero in that film. Sure, I think he—I mean, he loved the freedom of being able to blow up the sort of suave, debonair <laughs> guy. You know, we, we made sure all his clothes were really tight so that right. it would look like he was like a little like they were just he was gaining weight and right. losing his we had him in a mustache um you know all of this stuff that really sort of helped helped him find this debauched character but i had no inkling i i didn't think any major actor was going to do it i just thought we would make it in a small little movie so when he said yes it was 
suddenly it was a real movie. You know, we had a real budget. We got Greg Kinnear. We got Hope Davis. And then about, and I wait, but, but here's the thing. So we waited a year for Pierce to become available because he wow. was doing a movie with Brett Ratner and he was doing something else. Right. And it was just like every few months he'd be like, we'll do it the next one. We'll do it the next one. Meanwhile, I hadn't been paid anything. Mm-hmm. And as I was saying, I was like really broke. It was so <laughs> crazy because you also have to act like a director. <laughs> right. Which You're is, in control. Exactly. Yeah. Everything is peachy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, I'll just I'll get back to what I'm saying. But to, to a few years later, I did win an Emmy for directing the pilot of Ugly Betty. Right. And I wish I had given this speech instead of the speech I gave, which was I find it odd to be given an award for directing a television show when Time Warner Cable shut off my cable two years ago because <laughs> I couldn't pay the bills. So nice. when I was waiting for Pierce to to say yes, literally my cable bill got turned off. Uh. And then about eight weeks before we're supposed to go down to Mexico and start scouting, he drops out. Oh, no, I didn't know about this. Which, as you can imagine, or maybe you can't, was like probably one of the lowest days, you know, you could, professionally imagine. you can imagine. Yeah. So had they paid you for the script or? They had, uh, they had they optioned, optioned the script. So you, that's almost no money. That was no money. It was 25. I mean, it was nothing. I don't even yeah. remember what it was. So, you know, everyone's like, we still want to make the movie, but you're basically back to zero. And we had waited a year. I wrote a, a letter, the most scathing letter to the Pierce. Oh my. That has ever been written. <laughs> I mean, I just let it out. I just really it was so unbelievable. I finished the letter and I was like, well, I'm not gonna send that one, but it really <laughs> it really felt good writing it. And then <laughs> I wrote him another letter uh saying, I think we need to have one more dialogue about this. You you need to explain to me what's what's going on and let's try and work it out. And he called me and we did. And there was a few lines of dialogue he didn't like. He got scared. I think he, he ultimately got scared. It was a sort of untested director in a role in which, you know, if he failed at it, it would be pretty public right. failure. And right. so he was nervous, which is, you know, listen, actors by their nature are very nervous people. I mean, it's a... Well, it's, they're exposing you're themselves. putting completely. yourself out there, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. it's just what it is. So we ended up making the movie and that did change my career uh unbelievably so only because it was suddenly like people saw this and they were like who is this guy and and it wasn't my first thing i had had failure i had learned how to be a better director Hmm. and i was ready for this opportunity i mean i was definitely ready for it and and you know it was an incredible experience well, let's let's back up a little bit. What what was your childhood like? Were you the only uh, the only child? Uh, I was an only child. Yeah. I grew up in New York. I spent a lot of time by myself in pre pre iPhone computer age. <laughs> you know, uh, I would I I would write a lot. I was writing short stories. I would I had a mirror on the door in my room, and so I would perform. You know, it was like a it was like a. Uh, I don't know, like a creative environment. I, I right. certainly, my dad was many things. He was a rock and tour, possible thief, uh, <laughs> had three that? different names, I, n- n- wow. no discernible job. So um, there was something slippery about it. But he Pop. loved movies. Yeah. And my mom on the opposite end was like a completely like sweet, still is like a uh, straight arrow. Yeah. And so I think I've I, my personality is is a kind of combination of both of them. But I was definitely raised in a creative environment. Were either of them musicians? Or? My dad was a visual artist, a painter and really? a sculptor. Oh, but not of any success and he did it he did it as a as sort of a hobby or what he loved to do. Uh, my father went to art school and was a painter and did all that, but never was able to make a penny at it. Same same yeah. story. Yeah. I don't know if your dad also then did a lot of illegal things to pay the rent. <laughs> Not like my that I father know did. Of. <laughs> yeah. um, the, there would be money slipped under the door. Oh my God. There would be, the phone would ring and people would be like, is Jack there? And my dad's name was Bob. And <laughs> I would know that I would be like, yeah, hold on. I'm like, uh, Dad is Jack. Homie, would be like, I'm taking it out of the room. I'm taking it in the other room. Hang up the phone as soon as you hear my voice. Like that sort of like 
who knows what was going on. Did you ever figure out what was going on? I did. Once he passed away, a lot of secrets were revealed. Uh, one day, maybe I will write about it. Um, yeah. I'm waiting for my uh, I'm waiting for my mom to pass away so I can honestly <laughs> okay. honestly address this. I'm not. That sounds <laughs> cold. That's not, not what I'm meaning. No. We, uh, I think uh, hopefully, I'll never get to write. Yeah. But you were brought up in a creative household, a much more creative household than many might have experienced. Yeah. But, but film was always a part of it. Were you a TV watcher? as a kid and i watched a lot of tv to the point where my tv was banned at some point because i was watching so much tv wow. um and i loved all of it you know but my dad took me to revival theaters and then when i got you know in high school i ended up working in a movie theater and at that time in new york if you worked at a movie theater there was sort of an unwritten rule that you could get into any movie in new york at any theater at any time for free <laughs> Ah. So that was like one of the best parts of working in that movie theater was then I could go to any other movie and be like, hey, I'm an usher at the Criterion. And they're like, all right, come on in. Like it was just a strange what, system. What was, what was that experience? You were able to go to anything. You worked in a movie theater. It must have been like a palace or, or a church. Mick, I have a list of all the movies I saw in 10th, 11th and 12th grade. Really? And it is endless. Endless. Wow. Wow. I, but I would see stuff like blood beach on the same day as i would see pauline on the beach like i saw wow. eric romer any you know i mean <laughs> any I, I would see it all so i and i i know that that has sort of infused my my filmmaking style that i have in me all sorts of films is as a as a thing i wasn't one type of movie i would see almost anything well, you have quite a schizophrenic resume. That's true. And, true. and probably fed by this. I mean, it, it appears by just looking at all of the work that you've done, whether it's Ugly Betty or The Twilight Zone or Salem or, or The Perfection, you know, is there a genre in particular that you saw yourself doing when you were a kid? No, I don't think that... I, 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 TV was not something I aspired to at a when I was younger. I don't think any of us did. You know, <laughs> um, but movies were, I mean, Apocalypse Now is the movie that definitely made me want uh -huh. to become a director. It was the first time I saw it when I was like 13 or something. Uh, and I just blew my mind. I mean, I remember the movie theater I saw it in. I remember the, I went with my dad. I remember it, I bought the album. You could buy wow. the album, which was like a double album set where they, yeah. a lot of the narration, like, uh, I, w I suddenly was like, oh, this is what this is what a director can do, hmm. you know, and um, but I, I do feel like that my, you know, I, I, I think some filmmakers get into a niche that they're very good at and then they are in that niche. They go in and out of it, but it's their sort of fallback place that that they can go to right. and they, they're fascinated by it. So they want to keep delving in. My movies have been very varied. And, Incredibly, and, and and that hurts me a little bit in that I'm not easily pigeonholed. There's not like a sort of mark, but at the same time, it's very reflective of my personality. That ultimately, I do follow whatever interest I have, and so wherever I'm at in my life leads into a movie in some capacity or, tr or try to well it seems to me it opens opportunities for you because in in the horror genre in particular it's sort of a ghetto in a lot of people's eyes and if you have some success in there bravo it's great it's exciting but the chance that you'll be able to work outside of that genre in my experience is somewhat limited they That's think right. of you as the horror guy they, they just pigeonhole you in a way that can hurt you without a doubt Exactly. Although, you know, our, obviously at this second in our business, horror is having some sort of uh, upswing. It's a good time. It's a good <laughs> yeah. time. And, yeah. and, and, you know, the audience is, is hungry for interesting stuff. That's right. for sure. Well, speaking of interesting stuff, I don't want to save it till later. We may as well dive into the perfection yes. right now. This is gleefully a genre film. <laughs> There's sure no is. secret that you're, you know, you've got an amazing cast. Um, you got Allison Williams, you've got Stephen Weber, you've got just, and and it's a, a compelling what you think of as a thriller. But Netflix right now with Bird Box and The Ritual and now with The Perfection is becoming the Lionsgate of streaming yeah. in a way. Um, 
was it a choice that you made, a commercial choice to make a genre film, or it was something that... It was definitely not a commercial choice. Um, uh, I had had this idea in the movie. There's a whole section in the movie, if you haven't seen it, where Alison Williams and Logan Browning are on a bus in China, and Logan gets very sick, both physically and, and mentally sick. I had had this idea for that section of a movie for about 10 years. Wow. I had gotten sick on a bus in Mexico myself mm. 25 years ago in the middle of nowhere, didn't speak the language, and it still was a really horrific memory for me. Of It's sort of a nightmare. It's like the worst nightmare is to be having diarrhea on a bus in another country where you can't speak the language. So yeah. so I, I had, that had stuck with me. And, and about two and a half years ago, I was like, you know, I, I really should just see if I can figure this movie out. And I had done this uh, pilot called Ringer, which was a show that Sarah Michelle Gellar was in, oh. in which she played identical twins. So she got to act with her favorite actress. Um, <laughs> that, that's, that's her joke. Um, but, uh, but the writers of Ringer, Eric and Nicole, I knew they had written for Supernatural. So I knew that they liked horror movies and, and they liked genre in general. And I was like, here's this sequence that I have in my head. Let's figure a movie around it. And let's not hold anything back. Let's, let's basically write a grindhouse 1983 Times Square movie. Let's just be <laughs> free of any constraints. Like, let's not worry about how we're going to get financed or anything like that. Let's just go. So you dove into it as a three-partner writing group. Yes. And it really helped because usually I write my scripts alone. When I started, I had a partner, but but for most of my career, I've written alone. But in this, and and by the way, starting with The Matador, not writing any outline. Not right. I just write with characters and scenes and see where I they hate go. The, unless you're writing on assignment where you have to do an outline, my favorite way is just page one, start time. Let the characters take yeah. you where they want to go. Yeah. But with the perfection, we I knew that if we were going to make a smartly plotted thriller. It, it a would, roadmap. It would be helpful. And I was really inspired by Park Chan-wook's movies, Old oh, Boy yeah. and The Handmaiden are two of my favorite movies. So good. And what he does beyond being a beautiful aesthetic filmmaker, takes these stories that have these, they're not even plot twists, they're they are full turns. He <laughs> yes. turns the house upside down and you're like, <laughs> how is this ever going to make sense? How does this connect to what we've just seen? And yet it somehow does. And so that was a real inspiration for The Perfectionist. Like, how can we try to do that in an American movie, which is turn plot around so much that the audience will be like, well, this is, there's no way that this has anything to do with this. And then hopefully by the end, they're like, oh, well, yeah, it, it all did. It right. might be a twisted way of getting there, but but it does make sense. And so and at first at the halfway point, you think that there's an explanation that makes all sense. But then that goes by the wayside as the story continues and the house flips upside down. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was super fun writing it and it weirdly was very easy to write it. Really? Tell yeah. me the process of the three of you sitting in a room. We one sat in a room. Thing. We broke the story down. And then I wrote the first draft really fast. And they did a pass on the second draft. And then like we were almost done. And the whole thing came about incredibly quickly. Like Once I went to them, we wrote it very quickly. Thankfully, they had an opening in there. Like, it just was one of those things. And we wrote it with Alison Williams in mind because I had directed on the show Girls for six right. years. You did like a dozen episodes. I did. And I, 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 it was a great, that was a great job. And, and a great show. Uh, thank you. I'm very proud of it. Yeah. But I, Alison and I became very good friends. So I was like, you know, we should write a movie for Alison. And all of the time we were doing this, Get Out had not come out yet. Right. So this was going to be her follow-up to well, I this knew, huge I movie. knew she was doing Get Out, but we didn't know what Get Out was going to be. Right. And right. we didn't know how much Get Out was going to help us right. by setting her up as being untrustworthy. Right. Like, I had already been like, Allison has an ability to hide her emotions in a way that is untrustworthy, even though she <laughs> is a trustworthy, lovely human being, acting why she can hold it back. And I was like, this is what we want. Then when Get Out came out, it was like, oh my God, it's perfect. Because yeah. not only did we I write it because I know she could do it, now the audience is coming in with a, a preconception. So we wrote it. I went uh, The new Miramax, which is not the Miramax that Harvey Weinstein owned, but the new version of it, uh, the, the, the guy, Bill Block, who runs it, had produced one of my movies. A former and, agent. Yes. And so I went to Bill. I'm like, do you want to do this movie? And he said, I do. 
and we sent it to Allison and she said, I do. But Allison said this. She said, listen, the movie was originally set not in China, but in Mexico. Right. And a little more personal experience. That's right. yeah. And Allison was like, look, I'm doing a TV series. I'm doing Lemony Snicket in Vancouver. If you can cha- figure out a way to do this movie in Vancouver, I will do it. Uh-huh. I will work seven days a week and I will do your movie and the show at the same time. Wow. Or you can wait six months for me. You know that waiting, having been burned by Pierce Brosnan, yeah. I was. I wait <laughs> yeah. for no man or no. woman. It never happens. It never. Ha- it's a guaranteed yeah. way to make your yeah. movie not happen. <laughs> so I was like, well, even even with the magic of cinema, we're not doing Mexico in Vancouver in January. No, <laughs> that is not happening. I've shot more in Vancouver than anywhere else, I think, yeah. and I've never found a Mexico location. I mean, there. it just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So we wanted to take place in a country though that. Um, uh, the people on the bus, for example, would be helpful, but wouldn't want to necessarily fight with the driver of the bus. Right. And so, so it kind of knocked out of certain countries that we, we could do, but China made sense for us. And then we ended up shooting the movie in Vancouver and went to China for a few days. But Which is great. But it was, you know, but again, so Allison said, yes, we changed it to thing and we shot it. And then we finished the movie in August of last year and then Fantastic Fest asked us to come in September ah, nice. and that's where we premiered and where we sold it to Netflix right after the Fantastic Fest which was one of the great uh, few days of my career. Yeah, well one of the amazing things about Netflix is they are a studio now. Uh, getting a deal, a distribution deal with Netflix it can either become something that nobody ever hears of because they don't promote it, or it becomes a phenomenon like yours, like Bird Box yep. did. Uh, we that, were nervous, though. Yeah, I mean, it was. It, you know, you we, want theaters. You want theaters. We, having seen the movie, you know, we tested the movie, and then we also played it at Fantastic Fest. I knew how audiences were reacting as a group. Right. And, you know, I think in our minds, we were like, oh, it would be great if A24 could buy this, if, mm, you know, yeah. if we could... The people who did Hereditary. We could just get a cool yeah. company to... And, you know, we showed it for... Everyone wanted to see it after Fantastic Fest, and a number of companies made offers to us, but, but Netflix just came in and was like, we're going to cover the whole thing. Right. We're going to shut down all those other There's offers. not even a question. <laughs> yeah. You're not... There's not even a thing. And... And... I remember talking to Allison Williams and she was both excited that they were going to buy it, but also we were nervous. Like, is this just going to disappear? Which is a major possibility with Netflix. But it's also a major possibility with with anything. My (laughs) last movie, Dom Hemingway, we sold it to Fox Searchlight. I was like, yay, Fox Searchlight. They dumped that movie like it was a toxic they can't like uh, like I can count the people in the world who saw that movie. Well, on one some hand. of them are in this yes. room, <laughs> but but it was just so I had done sort of the fantasy version where you had a cool studio putting the movie out and saw that just not work. Right. So I was like, what do we have to lose? And one of the things that got us excited about Netflix and the perfection were two things. One, I knew they wouldn't have to cut a two and a half minute trailer. Right. Because I was terrified of the two and a half minute trailer. Of giving things away. They would have to get, they already give a little bit away in the one minute and 10 second trailer that is on Netflix, but they don't give the whole house away. They don't bring up the Steven Weber character. They don't do anything. And that really was exciting to me because I was like, if a regular studio takes this movie, they're going to have to figure a way to get people into the theater. So they're going to reveal too much. So that was one thing that made me excited about Netflix. And the other thing, which definitely proved right was... If it starts getting a social buzz about it, this is a movie that you kind of need to see. Right. Right. Almost immediately or it's going to get spoiled or ruined or whatever. And, and you don't need to go out to a theater to do it. You Everybody has Netflix. I mean, the idea that millions upon millions upon millions, more people saw The Perfection in the first 10 days that it was on Netflix than have seen all my other movies combined <laughs> times wow. 10. You know, it's just right. one of those things by the nature of it. And horror fans or genre fans thrillers horrors netflix is really they know this audience and they're trying to give them what they want which is i think stuff that is different than the rest you know there's plenty of 
you know, you can you can go to see a certain type of movie in the theater and know exactly what you're going to get. And those movies are very successful. Netflix is like you don't really know what you're going to get, but but it might be interesting to you. It it excites me because it's not franchise horror aimed at teenagers. That's right. Which, which becomes just so dire and so tiresome. Exactly. And with the perfection. I had no idea what I was getting, and no one could possibly guess what they're getting. So let's also talk about um, your your fascination with South Korean films, because you are a genre fan, yeah, and you seem to have a very good working knowledge of um, of Wook and uh, uh, and um, you know uh, all of these films that I find fascinating that have come out of South Korea, whether it's The Host or yeah. or um, Tale of Two Sisters. I mean, there's really great genre stuff being made there with amazing production value. When you, I mean, listen, we're, we're with, with iTunes, with Netflix, with all of these places to get films, if you hear about something, I want to see it. I want to see it now. Yeah. And, and that's pretty exciting. And certainly when I hear about a movie that is not being released by an American co- big company, it's not a Marvel movie, it's not sort of a, as you said, sort of a teen horror movie. If I hear about something from from wherever I hear about it that sounds like it's a cool movie, if I can seek it out and see it, it's unbelievable. Like, oh my God, I just heard about this movie. I can find it. I can watch it. And if I, and, and sometimes you have to go to Fantastic Fest to see it. <laughs> right. But whatever the case is, there's just so many cool, so much cool stuff being made. And I don't know. I feel like it's a great time to be a film fan. I mean, there are a no lot kidding. of really good movies. It's it's a great time to be a filmmaker. It's tough when you've made the movies to get them noticed in, in our world because right. there's so much product. Never, than, never more than, than there is now. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So the idea of that you can even blip, make a blip in the, the social whatever is a miracle. So that's the downside. But on the plus side as a viewer, there's just a lot, you know, the world is open to us. There's a lot of great movies being made in places other than America. And in, in, in many ways, South Korea encourages clearly this type of filmmaking cinematic insanity yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. what what are your favorite of the south korean films without a doubt park chan wook's movies are my favorite Uh, the the and i've seen them all you know i I, you know between uh uh some of them are on criterion streaming some of them are on we're on film struck when that existed but yes uh uh, canopy has become a really good source now and and shutter i guess is shutter's great yeah yeah um but you know i i feel like as i said to you before when i was a kid i would see almost every movie Mm -hmm. i tend to like to see movies i'll just experiment with movies some some you know, someone works, you know, night train to Busan or whatever. Oh, yeah, the train to Busan is amazing. Holy Did you shit. see the animated movie that was its predecessor? No, no. That's, that exists. Wow. And it's out there, too. I mean, that film was just a surprise out of left field. Snowpiercer, whatever. You know, like yeah, you're just seeing these, these sort of yeah. movies that you're like, well, this. the imagination here is so unrestrained by having to hit any. They don't care. It's like, you're going to enjoy this. If you like a good genre movie you're going to enjoy this but don't think you know what's going to happen other than it's going to be bonkers absolutely you and know. that's that's the difference between what's going on in america because well, particularly with the studios they sell what they know how to sell they know what will play to the teenage audience that sort of and that's fine there's a there's a place for that but horror is not necessarily intended for kids correct and also true horror buffs don't want to see a movie they kind of know what's going to happen before yeah. it even starts. Yeah. Do you they, consider yourself a true horror buff? Well, I think I have to go back to saying I'm a film buff. Mm. Like horror is not necessarily like it's not like if I have a choice between three movies, I'm going to always go to the horror movie is right. what I'm going to see. And I tend to not go see necessarily the teenage horror movie that du jour, you know, in general, right. I don't drink eight. Yes. Yeah. It's just like, I, I you know, but because I love movies, and I, when I was a kid, I loved horror movies, and I still do, you know, and I think some of the greatest movies ever made have been horror movies, you know. What are the ones that you feel are the, your, your favorites? 
Um, well, I mean, I'm going to give some obvious answers, but uh, they're uh, valid. Don't look now. Yeah. By Nick Rogue, I think is is like a is a masterpiece of a ghost story and mm-hmm. a great love story. Um, I think The Exorcist. I know it's sort of been referenced one trillion times, but but it's undeniable. It is. Yeah. It is a deeply, deeply scary piece of cinema. You know, it's yeah. an incredible movie. Recently, I liked uh, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night Yeah, uh, by Lily Amanpour. I thought it was great. Yeah. Um, what was the one with... Um... <laughs> I'll remember in a second, but, but okay. yeah. Uh, yeah, so I have a, there's a lot of movies there's that... There's really interesting yeah. stuff going on from the Babadook to... Babadook to, was great. To, you know, to uh, Revenge. You revenge know. was spectacular. What a what an interesting, and interesting movie. And a first movie. She was on the show as well, Carly Fargia. What a and, great... Uh, first movie, but a, a great movie. Yeah. yeah, somebody who bursts on the scene, uh, Ari Aster with Hereditary, yes. yeah. you know, a first-time filmmaker who already has a vision is kind of amazing, and it happens more in the horror genre than it happens anywhere else. Well, there's a little bit of a freedom, also from a budgetary standpoint. You don't really need big actors. Right. You know, uh, right. It, it's, in a way, I think horror, like, historically has created stars, you know, so you don't necessarily need a giant actor in your movie to to garner attention if it's clever and smart. I mean, I wrote the movie for Allison who had yet to be in a movie, you know, mm-hmm. so she really didn't mean much. You know, the financiers were like, you could get a lot more money for your movie if you went with a different actor. Right. You know, Allison had been on a TV show. It wasn't like she wasn't known, but she didn't mean, you know, in the world where mean something means something. But. Well, you've been in various levels of involvement on TV series as well. Let's talk a little about your work in television first. When you've done 12 episodes of a series, you're not just a director for hire. You're part of the creative... I mean, Girls was definitely... It's the only series I've ever sort of been on, as they say. You know, um, I, I... Loved that show, and they tailored scripts for me. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, not from the beginning, but after I sort of proved myself, you know, I certainly I got all these bottle episodes and very sort of cinematic ones. And Lena Dunham and Judd Apatow and Jenny Connor were great partners to 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 work with. In general, I do a lot of TV pilots, right? Which is sort of like making a movie. It is. It, it's a great gig. It's, you know, you're, you're... You're not paid scale. You're not paid scale. <laughs> you're paid a nice amount of money, and you're, but, you, you know, you have three months to help them get this show on the air, and it's about casting it and setting the tone and the look, and you really have time to, like, dig into the script in a different way than you can on, an ep- on a regular episodic show. Right. And I've loved, I've loved doing those pilots that i've done i did the pilot of criminal minds mm-hmm. i did the pilot to salem which was you know i that was like uh for the first four days we tried to shoot salem with only natural light i was going to do the whole thing and only with candles right. and after four days fox was just like these dailies are dark and i'm like i i know it's a horror <laughs> show it's like right. it's supposed to be dark and they're like, but there's we can't make it any brighter. I'm like, I know, it's lit by a candle. <laughs> <laughs> That's intentional, guys. And then they were like, well, we're going to fire you. I'm like, all right, we'll put some more light. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about that. Uh, the other voices who do influence what happens in television directing and what I talked about in our preamble a little bit, where you have freedom as a filmmaker uh, as doing a pilot, but there are many lords. The, the network, the... Uh, studio, the writer-producers, um, that sort yes, of thing. It's, what is it's, your experience? It's a different animal. I mean, one of the reasons I like to toggle and feel lucky that I can between doing, let's say, pilots and movies is that with movies, the buck stops with me ultimately. You know, right. live or die, it, it is me. Um, with with TV, I work for I work for them. I mean, the idea is to to get the writer's vision on screen and to get the show picked up. Um, I like both worlds very much. I feel like I can, you know, I learn stuff. There's something There's something sort of challenging to figure out someone's personality, mm-hmm. the writer's personality, and then to really get in their head and try and figure out what's the show they really want to make. Because they've been spending two years in notes, notes calls, studio meetings about the script. They've been beaten down and they've lost touch most of the time with actually why they wanted to make the show in the first <laughs> right, place. Yeah. And suddenly now, we're actually, grind, now yeah. we're actually trying to make the show and I get to bring back a little bit of the spirit of like, oh yeah, 
this is why I wanted to make this show and it's going to be really fun. I mean, I finished The Perfection and just directed a musical for NBC that's going to go on in January called Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. How amazing is that? And that was... I was like, first of all, I can't believe anyone's paying me to direct a musical. It's the greatest <laughs> job. This is unbelievable. And we had the choreographer from La La Land. It was just a blast. But that was as different from the perfection as you possibly can get. And I feel like what I like about my TV work is that I get to just jump into different types of genre and film film styles and filmmaking. And it's a little anonymous, right. you know. And and I don't mind that either. You know, I I, feel- I didn't expect to like the process, and yeah. I've really enjoyed what right. I've done. I, you know, on Once Upon a Time, I did a couple episodes doing fairy tales and working in various visual effects uh, techniques that I'd never handled before. And the cast was amazing. And you're in, and uh, the most emotional scene I've ever directed mm. was a death scene in Once Upon a Time right. in somebody else's TV show. And I wouldn't have gotten that opportunity had I Nor, not Nor, uh, as well as A, you're working, which is always good. You know yes. what I mean? It's good to yeah. work. It's good both A, you got to pay the rent. That's first and foremost. But just as a just as an artist, it's good to you're work. You're growing and flexing. And yeah. you get to t- use equipment you wouldn't necessarily get to use or do special effects you haven't necessarily done. You get to experiment in ways that is 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 really helpful when you get back into doing a movie you're like you know what I've u- I just used this type of thing on this TV show I can right. bring this into here as opposed to not doing anything for 3 years between movies and then being a a little more desperate when your movie is finally happening but be also a little rusty you know yeah, yeah. and and rust rusty scary because you know it's 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 about having this i always feel i don't know if you do like when i'm directing and i've been directing i feel like i'm in the zone and i'm Absolutely. like I'm, my confidence level is high and you're my, evolving my too. creative creative yeah. levels high i'm not i'm not self-doubting as much as normal and so like you're, you're that only in, makes the work better if you're in that sort of zone speaking of zones one of the most important programs to our genre from television starting in 1959 was the Twilight Zone. You actually are a part of the new Twilight Zone, which would seem like a dream job, but I guess it was less than the dream job that you'd hoped for. Well, I was a big fan of the original Twilight Zone, and you know, when I was a kid, it was on reruns constantly, and the Burgess Meredith episode is oh. without a doubt, you know, one of the most perfect half hours ever. Oh, ever. the glasses. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so I always loved the Twilight Zone. And, you know, I read that they were going to reboot it. And I asked to be a part of it. You know, I felt like it would be fun. I, I knew it was going to be an anthology show. So I thought it'd be fun because it would have nothing to do with Anything before or after would only exist in its in in the specific of the show I was going to do. There's no visual pattern. That's, that's right. Set, I I, you know? I could basically have that experience, and and uh, it turned into a very frustrating thing. I mean, you know, the the there's there's highs and lows with everything. I've been very lucky in terms of the stuff I've done and the people I've worked with. I feel I feel very lucky that that I keep getting to work with such great people. Um, Twilight Zone was a situation where it just didn't gel with the people who were making it, mm. and and I haven't even seen the episode that I directed. Really, but I it's just, not it's it's not mine. I just watched it last night, and what's fascinating is the was it. Uh, it's it's called the Wonderkind, and it's about a child becoming president I came of the up United with the title. States. That part, ah, that part, okay. I can tell you. All right, uh, and it's an eleven-year-old child becomes the president of the United yeah. States. So, sort of like we have today, which I assume, like Rod Serling, there was a social consciousness in the making of his version of the Twilight Zone. It seems to be a recurring theme in the current Twilight Zone as well, the social consciousness. And- Without a doubt. I mean, yeah. you know, and again, uh, uh, this is a situation, I mean, I, this is a situation in which I think I was promised something that I was not given. Mm. And, um, you know, it just was painful. It's always painful. I tried to get my name off the show you can't take your name off of anything that you do on television i found from the director's guild oh and i was like well i understand that for an episode of ncis but like for an anthology show there is a signature to the to each director and i'm each one's a film i'm being credited for this and i have nothing to do with this final cut of this it doesn't remotely resemble 
there was stuff that was wow. reshot that I was not consulted on. Really? Like it was just it's um uh it's it, it's a it's a bit of a bummer because I was so excited to be part of the Twilight Zone legacy in yeah. some some way. What did you want it to be? Better. <laughs> but in what way? I mean, you went in there with a plan. There was a script that existed and Well, and- I mean, I, without getting into too much detail, I was asked to do some work on the script, which I did which was sort of not what I was expecting was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was no, the, there was the, there was no showrunner. There was no one running. There was literally no showrunner. No one really? was on set the entire time. Really? So it was strange because I was doing sort of like an independent film, except it was a TV show, but without it intrinsically in my blood, I didn't, I was, this was, I been hired three weeks before mm-hmm. I, you know, and so it was a tough thing. And then, you know, there was just no adult supervision. And then at a certain point, adult supervision came in. After the fact. And and I wasn't asked, uh, consulted or anything. It was just sort of done. So it was... So you shot the film and then it was put in other hands and they just completely... Yeah, and they reshot. They didn't reshoot. They added some stuff. I mean, all I know is that it it was... Again, I wish everyone on the twilight zone the best of luck i hope that runs for decades again you know and all yeah. of that stuff it just was a bad experience for me and a weir- weird after many years of doing this to have such a weird bad taste in my mouth right to have had decades of yeah fun you know, it's the most it. fun job in the world that was yeah. you know and and shooting it was fun i loved the cast john and jacob and, and allison but it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was weird. Well, it seems like it has, this is CBS All Access, yeah. and their shows seem to have very healthy budgets. Oh, uh, there was definitely a healthy budget. The, the twi- they were spending money like a drunken sailor on the Twilight Zone. I think we shot that for, I don't know, 15 days? I mean, it just kept going on and on and on and on and on. I mean, it, it was like, so, yeah. I mean, here's the thing is, it's going to get better. It's clear some of those episodes after mine is have definitely come become better Mm -hmm. and i think you know it'll definitely find its footing but uh, yours was one of the early ones shot correct yeah Yeah. um a lot of your work is around taking well-known actors and letting them do something totally different uh matador was one of those things steven weber in in the perfection is one of those things but also dom hemingway is something that's really impressive with jude law tell me a little about that experience well i've had a lot of luck um working with great actors and taking them out of their comfort zones a little bit and i feel like as a independent filmmaker how are you going to attract an actor if you can't pay for them? <laughs> you know, I yes. mean, it's very, if you can pay for anyone, things have become very attractive. But if you are basically saying I'm offering you scale or, you know, something close to scale, how am I going to get these people even to read the script? And to me, it was always like, I have to offer them something that they're not being offered at all. Like they're just not being thought about. Like if I suddenly went to Jude Law five years ago and been like, I'm doing a romantic comedy in which you're (laughs) like, he would have been like, are you kidding me? And you're paying me scale. So I, I also like to see actors do stuff that you haven't seen before, because I feel like that's part of what's fun about going in the movies is it is suddenly being like, Holy shit. I didn't know he could do that or she could do that. And so, um, with Dom Hemingway, I wrote this movie in a fever dream. And, uh, did you have Jude in mind for this? I didn't. I, I I didn't have him in mind, but his name was brought up very early in the process, and I was like, I think this is a Hail Mary, but let's give it a go. And he, through, because our casting director knew him, he read the script like almost immediately. I remember I was directing the pilot of, I think it was Salem, mm-hmm. and I flew. Uh, we were in prep on Salem, and I flew to London to meet him on the weekend. Wow. And we went out drinking. I met him at like five at a pub. And then at like we closed the pub at 11. <laughs> and we had dr- drunk for like, you know, several hours, like seven <laughs> hours or whatever. And I was shit faced because we had I barely eaten anything. And I I went back to a hotel and I had to catch a plane at like nine the next morning. So I got like two hours of sleep. And I remember being in the cab to the airport and like. I think he said he'd do the movie. <laughs> I don't even really remember. I had a really good time. Just tell him he did. Exactly. Yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. But it was, you know, that movie was very, very interesting because we, Jude was not working when we were prepping. And he said, listen, I want to come to every casting session you want me to. Wow. And then I want to rehearse as much as you want. And I will even rehearse on the locations that the movie's set in if you want. So on just every single day, we would like Richard E. Grant, who was in it, who was right. lovely. And by the way, it drove Jude nuts that people, of course, went to Richard E. Grant on the street and not to Jude. Because oh, Richard E. Really? Grant, because of With Neil and I, is a he's yeah. rock star in London. And Jude Jude's was, just an actor. But so, also the way his appearance was it, in right, the movie Right, but when we were different. rehearsing, we would just go to the locations. And then just it would just be me and the DP and the actors. And we every single scene was blocked before the, we shot wow. the movie. And it was an incredible experience. And having that much rehearsal allowed um, us to really have, I don't know, an incredible amount of fun while we were shooting. Because right. a lot of the pressure of shooting is like, how are we going to block the scene? How's the morning going to go? Yeah, no what, kidding. What's, you know, and we, never, we, sh- we were always shooting 20 minutes after call. Wow. Because, you know... You knew where you were We knew everything. We knew where the shots were. We knew what everything... And it allowed a lot of more fun and flexibility and takes and all of this other stuff. It was just... It was a really extraordinary experience. And I think Jude Law's amazing in that movie. Um, And it's a real... Absolutely. It's a real... um, You know, I think it gave him... He wanted to show a different side of him, as Pierce did, wanted to show a different side of himself in The Matador. And I think Allison wanted to show a different side of herself in The Perfection. You know, Absolutely. I think it's about timing with these actors because they're all, it's, it's, it's a tricky world. You don't know why, an act, even an actor you've worked with, I'm sure you've had this where you're like, you, you've worked with them before, you're friends with them, you approach them about a new project and it just turns them off for whatever reason. You can't quite get in your head why, but it is just about timing. It's about timing yeah. of like, when is the right moment for the right thing? And then if you can, if that, if that works. And it also, as an independent filmmaker, getting Pierce Brosnan got my movie financed, getting Jude Law got that movie yeah. financed, getting well, Allison it, Williams got my, the perfection greenlit. Yeah, well, uh, with Pierce, you know, we were going to make Bag of Bones with him or without him, but it suddenly became something entirely different when you've got Stephen King and Pierce Brosnan together. And Pierce, as in The Matador, not quite in as overt a way as in The Matador, playing something very different. That's right. And very emotional. He's playing a character whose wife dies during the process of the film. And, of course, he had lost a wife in real life. And tapping into those things, in seeing him in emotional scenes that I'd never seen him do before that were so groundbreaking for for my experience of Pierce Brosnan and knowing when to step back and leave him alone and encourage him, but... Well, that's a lot of directing, right, Nick, is like to know when to shut up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you just have to, like when an actor is giving something that you can't believe or they're tapping into something, you just want to make sure it's the cameras are rolling and that it's in focus and then just step back. Let go, yeah. He knew better than I did how he was going to handle that scene particular, you know? And I think great actors, they they, they, they want direction and they want to know that someone is confident is and capable right. is watching them and guiding them exactly. but at, at the end of the day they're coming to work they kind of know what they, they they've yeah. done the work they just now need to get it done and we need to film it and they need to right. we give them context we give the context we have to put them in the right room i always say like locations are like another character in a movie you have to cast them like you cast characters even right down to the extras because ultimately like if if it all feels real even though it's an artificial environment the actor can lose themselves easier. You know, when we did right. the bus sequence in The Perfection, I was, all the people on the bus were actors. They weren't extras. Mm. We were talked about doing it in a green screen. I'm like, no, I want to do it on a real road, on a real fucking old bus. I want oh, you ev- feel it. I want those bumps to like, I want, I want to have that be as harrowing for the actors as it is for their characters in some way. And that putting them in that environment made a huge difference. It's like it, they, 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 they felt it and it then allowed the scene to get as real as, as they were capable of doing. And we feel it, you know, the, the danger of that bus yes. ride and the discomfort and the growing sickness and the yeah. like is really, really 
tough to take. Good. In, in a great sense. <laughs> it's supposed in a great to be. Sense. Yeah, yeah. Thank well, you. Let's talk a little bit about Stephen Weber. I never saw Wings, which was probably a good thing because as Jack Torrance, I don't know if I could have imagined this so you goofy cast character. A, was he cast before you came on? or did No, you, no. I cast him. You cast him based on an audition? Based on an audition. He wow. came in and read with Rebecca de Mornay. We had cast Rebecca de Mornay first. Right up top, we could not cast Jack Torrance because right. everyone People didn't want to do it. And... They didn't want to be compared to Jack Nicholson. They knew the first line of every review would be "so and so is no Jack Nicholson." Right. But Weber, who was a very successful television actor, I knew him from Single White Female and right. a couple other things, but I didn't know the comedic side, and it was good because I might not have seen him. Then he came in and read with Rebecca blew us all away but this was three days before shooting started because no one would do it oh my god and one um one english actor who has become a film star uh said he was going to do it and then never showed up for any fittings or anything so we're three days before shooting oh my goodness and weber came in and read and this was an hour after stephen king had said if we don't cast this today i'm pulling the plug and Weber came in and blew us away. And I know him as a dramatic actor. Now I know the funny part of Weber because you can't know him and not know the funny part. Well, having Stephen Weber on a set is is a lovely thing because <laughs> it's a it, great is, thing. it is a funny, funny place to be. I I wanted a cat. I'd worked with him on two failed pilots. Ah. And so I knew him uh, and I went out of my way to cast him in the second one after working with him on the first one. And... Then we became friendly, and I saw him in a play at at um, Provincetown, and it, he was so great in it. It was a drama, and he was really good. So it went in my mind. I'm like, hey, if you ever have a dramatic, in my mind, I'm like, if there's a dramatic role, I might go, might think of Stephen for this. And when we're talking about casting the perfection for that role in the movie. I really didn't want a major star. Now, that sounds weird. We didn't have the no. money for a major star, but I also didn't want one even if we could have gotten one. because They've I did, got some baggage. Yeah. I didn't want people to... If they saw a star in that... If Christoph Waltz was in that role, mm. then as soon as... Through the whole movie, they'd be just waiting for Christoph Waltz to come back. Right. Because... Christoph Waltz isn't going to just be in a movie for 20 minutes at the beginning of the film. <laughs> right. He's got to come back. But I really wanted the surprise of when you do go back at the second half of the movie and Steven Weber is there, you're like, what? How is this possibly going to com- connect to what we just saw in China? You know, how does this at all work? And so I, I thought it would be really fun with Steven because he's a, people like him. They see him on screen. He, he, you know, Incredibly likable actor. Yeah. But I said to Steven when we did the movie, as I said to Allison and Logan, I'm like, look, we're not going to have sides on this movie. There's no video village. There's no playback. There's one grip and one electric on this film. It's the tiniest sets. We're going to do this like a like a small movie, and we're going to have a great time doing it. But you're going to know your lines <laughs> because there's no size. There's no take three. We have to shoot this movie in 24 days in two wow. countries. Wow. Like you, you have to come in and know what you're doing. And I think... So Stephen, like, I think upped his game, you know, it'd been a few years since he'd been challenged, I think, as an actor and was excited to have this opportunity and, you know, had a blast as we all did, you know, again. And uh, it was one of those things when I remember filming one of his monologues near the end and being like looking at at my handheld monitor and going, oh, shit, like he's nailing this. Like, I don't have anything to say to him. Like, that is just... And that's always... When when you're watching a take and you know you're you're getting it, it's like yeah. a very giddy moment because you're like, oh, yes, yeah, I don't have to work now. Actually, I have to work <laughs> in a second after I yell cut. Right. But right now, I can actually just enjoy this, not be thinking about how to correct it. Just uh, be like, yes. You're in the movie. You're, you're in the movie. The you're, movie. you're the first yeah. audience of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So what's next? What's coming up for you, Richard? Well, as I said, I just directed this musical for called Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist for NBC. Um which I'm excited for people to see because it's really the pilot was I think turned out really great. I'm writing some new stuff. I'm I'm write, working on a book as well, a novel. Oh, great, uh, my first one. Who knows if it will ever see the light of day? But I'm been working I'm on sure it. Sure, it will. And uh, you know, just trying to figure out what I want to do next. You know, I'm I've 
I've spent a lot of this year away from home. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you well know, it's a part of our business. They don't talk about it when you start <laughs> as a director that you're going to spend a lot of time on airlines and away from your family. Yeah. So between the perfection and Twilight Zone and this pilot, I did three things in a row in, in Vancouver. You know, wow. I, I'm just like, I've been home now for like, two months and I'm, I'm I'm like you know what I'm puttering around the house and I'm, it's kind of nice it's okay <laughs> I can't keep this up forever but the, the, right now the puttering is is pretty fun well I really appreciate you coming and sharing your experiences with us and appreciate the work you've done and thank you for the matador and for Pierce Brosnan <laughs> <laughs> so thanks so much for being a part of our show this is so fun Mick thank you all right Richard take care If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, You can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.